Hello, hello, and uh, for one last time, welcome back to COP26 Covered. This is ED's daily podcast show, which is being broadcast live from the ground at the Climate Summit in Glasgow. But not today, because Matt, Sarah and I are now all back down in West Sussex in England. We're speaking on the afternoon of Saturday, the 13th of November. The so-called Glasgow Climate Pact has inevitably run into overtime, but we pretty much know now what we're going to get. So... Are we happy with the deal as it stands? Is no drama Sharma living up to his name? And what are Matt and Sarah's sleep scores looking like now? All of that and more right here on COP26 Covered. Yes, hello from my actual home. No more Airbnbs, no more windowless hotel rooms, no more blue carpets of of the COP26 hallways. I've spent the last 24 hours uh, readjusting to normal life here and, and recuperating after a full two-week stints up in Glasgow. Matt and Sarah, meanwhile, have been glued to their laptops for the past 24 or 48 hours, um, leafing through draft after draft of near-final, almost-ready negotiation texts right through to this morning. And I'm pleased to say that the ED trio are reunited, albeit virtually. Content editor Matt, hello. Hello, hello. Usually at this point you'd be watching Soccer Saturday. Is Alok Sharma an adequate replacement for Jeff Stelling? I mean, it's international break anyway, so I'm actually not really missing that much. Um, but uh, in in its own way, I suppose it's, uh, it's you know what's going on in, inside the the discussions and negotiations right now is very very kind of tactical. It's almost kind of more highbrow than what a soccer Saturday would be. <laughs> this is true. Um, and senior reporter Sarah, hello to you. You're looking far too fresh faced for for someone who's spent the past two weeks sitting in in high level sessions and and reading through climate texts. I like how you didn't say that about me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This is entirely because I had a, like a stress clean of my house and then a stress shower this morning, sort of knowing that might not be able to until the texts come in, to mm. be honest. Well, at least one of us has showered. That's a good thing. Um, so our final edition of our COP26 covered podcast is uh, yeah, the last dance, as I titled this meeting online. Before we get into it, I mean, how are we feeling, guys, after the last two weeks, this whirlwind, which has run into a, a, another weekend of work? Jaded weary um <clears throat> running on fumes i suppose having fun i, I think that the the time for fun is is, is kind of over like it, you know cop uh, and being there in glasgow and kind of soaking up the atmosphere was you know generally a good experience but when you kind of take the the individual out of this this is a really big moment in kind of the history of, of humanity and it's not so much fun as more of a kind of impending feeling of dread so sorry to be a massive down at the start of this episode. But... No, I've, I feel like jaded is a really good word to use here. And I'm sort of also thinking like we've covered so many announcements, so much work from businesses, civil society, NGOs, youth activists, indigenous peoples groups. Um, and what has it been for? We've got a, a group of like 190 or so people arguing about yes words on a page but ultimately something much bigger than all of that like will a loss and damage facility get set up this year or will it be another four years well that can be kicked down the road and will nations be able to mark their own homework on on coal and fossil fuels um to be honest so it's sort of it's been said before that there's two cops hasn't it like the negotiations and then everything that goes around and then some people say that there's more but the mood has definitely shifted quite a lot since um since the last i think they called it like the last official non-state actors event was was on thursday and yeah the mood is a lot of um a lot of clock watching a lot of nail biting um as you say a lot of pouring through text still Mm. 
yeah, it really has been a, a roller coaster ride of, of two weeks. Um, from a personal perspective, I haven't really experienced anything quite like it in my entire career in terms of just how intense and unpredictable some of those days were. Even preparing ourselves for it, we all knew it was going to be a bit of a circus, but it was um, really intense. I don't know about you guys, but it was literally as soon as I stepped in the door of my home yesterday that it properly hit me in terms of how tired I actually was and am. You probably still can hear it in my voice. Anyway, I'm not complaining because it was you know, it was at parts it was it was also great fun. Uh, I know how privileged we all are as well to have been able to be a part of something this big, as, as Matt's mentioned, and uh, especially in these times, with so much of the world still under extensive restrictions with COVID. Anyway, um, so let's get on with the show because uh, with it being our closing show of COP26 covered, we're well and truly going out with a bang. Uh, And the focus of this final episode is, of course, on our COP legacy. So we're going to be exploring what impact COP26 has had on the various impacts of the world and our society and will have in months and years to come. We're speaking with a Gen Z filmmaker about the influence this COP has had on young people and vice versa. We'll also be speaking to an actual Glaswegian and a sustainability leader about what impact this two-week festival will have on the local area and community in the in the months and years to come. And we'll hear from the sustainability director of Formula E, who really stole the show in terms of the exhibitions that were on display at this COP uh, about the impacts of this summit on the future of clean transport. So a packed show to get through. But before all of that, uh, we have to start with the here and now, which is the Glasgow Agreement, or the almost agreement as it is right now at the time of recording. The final draft of text was released this morning, going off previous COPs. It's pretty likely that this will be what we're going to get there or thereabouts in the final agreement. Matt, you've been much closer to this and, and overseeing our coverage of the drafts and second drafts and near final drafts. Give us your take. Is, it, is this the deal that business and, and sustainability professionals would have wanted coming into these talks? I don't think so, but it's not it's not a it's not a bad deal. Like if you if you look at through the context of, of previous COPs, this is probably the biggest step we've taken since the, the Paris Agreement in terms of what's in the final draft. Right now we've got a kind of unprecedented mention of fossil fuels that came in the first draft and I think was surprising to many, you know, fossil fuels isn't technically referenced in the Paris Agreement at all. Um, The language around that has weakened draft to draft. It was a kind of an urging of a phase out of of fossil fuel and subsidies. It's now a phase out of unabated um, fossil fuels. So um, that's kind of, you can technically still use fossil fuels as long as you're kind of using like CCS and stuff, which is kind of rubbed people right up the wrong way. And then the, I think the real one is the, uh, phasing out of uh, inefficient or inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. I think if you ask anyone in the green space what they class as inefficient fossil fuel subsidies, they'd say all fossil fuel subsidies, considering where we need to go. That's a bit of a loophole. You've got to define what that really means. Um, so it's weakened a bit, but it's still in there. It survived essentially two to three rounds of negotiations, which in itself is a huge step forward. It's not where it needs to be, though. It's kind of simultaneously progress but not progress enough it's kind of like arsenal under arteta at the moment it's going in the right direction but probably not at the pace that um arsenal fans or fans of the planet in this case would really like um and then there's kind of some wider intricacies um around loss and damage so uh, china and the g77 they really pushed for this loss and damage facility that didn't make the that didn't make the final draft that came out uh this morning saturday morning um there's 
kind of a resolution to hold a workshop on it in June next year, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Um, it just means they'll discuss it. Um, so that's a big step back. There is this kind of Santiago framework around kind of um, improving kind of understandings and metrics around it again needs to be kind of defined what that is. Um, and then on the finance aspect as well, um, just kind of expressing regret that the 100 billion target wasn't met and urgently kind of calls on nations to, to hit that through to 2025. Um, they need to define the reporting mechanisms to do so. Um, still questions as to whether that will be through loans or grants, because it's historically been majority through loans, which isn't good for the kind of um, payback of developing countries. Um, and then I think the final thing is we have seen some nice positive, like positive, maybe not right, we've seen some developments in Article 6, which is probably the, the, the kind of one of the biggest, most complex areas now. There's some progress, which kind of helps in terms of avoiding kind of potential issues around double counting um, and kind of, kind of wipes out a few kind of um, credits that don't necessarily prove they're not linked to kind of deforestation and, and whatnot as well. But again, it, it kind of, from what I've seen on Twitter, is still a bit of a loophole that allows developing nations to kind of carry on as normal whilst moving the problem elsewhere. So um, it's, yeah, it's a weird one. Simultaneously good and bad. And, and you ask whether um, businesses, uh, whether this is the, 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 the deal for them. I think so. I think so. I think we've seen a lot of private sector movement, regardless um, around COP. It's been such a busy uh, involvement for for the private sector. You know, race to zero has been a huge driver of ambition, as we've seen across the week through all the uh, videos and and, video and interviews we published on ED. It's kind of moving that ambition to action, the the blah 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 into action, as Paul Polman put it. Um, it's clear that this is the direction of travel. It's more of a question of how quick will that travel be mm. yeah there's a good deal of good in it isn't there is the text of the words i saw from lord deben this morning um but of course yeah there are these areas where businesses and ngos and campaigners especially would have liked to have seen more ambition particularly around the carbon markets and article six as you say matt and climate finance also loss and damage worth a mention i.e those kind of reparations that should or shouldn't be paid to developing nations to help them cope with the worst effects of climate change um so um thanks for that matt thank god you're not on the uh, 30 second challenge because that would have uh, overrun a little bit but um realize there's a lot to run through there um anyway sarah on that note one of my favorite features of this podcast um has been your unwavering ability to to deal with our 30 second challenges and, and round up the big announcements every day from cop in a flash with matt on the stopwatch hassling you um so for one last time sarah you fancy another go I do, but you messaged me before this to say that it'd be 60 seconds yes. and I've got a lot more to get through. We've had two whole weeks, so I think 30 would be very stingy of you, Luke, and it's World Kindness Day. Oh, did I? Not I to make to... you sound like a, yeah. you know... I say stick to 30, got to get that continuity in. Nah, do you know what? I'm going to be fair to Sarah because if we added up the allotted time in the times that we did run this this uh, segment, Matt, I think half the time it was like 20 seconds because you kind of just started before she'd even set off. So we'll give Sarah a minute to summarise um, the key announcements that have come out of COP, aside perhaps from this draft final text, so around it. Um, mm -hmm. Stopwatch at the ready. You map. also asked me, Luke, to focus specifically on um, the stuff that probably will affect businesses. So yes. I know we've probably had loads of people um, listening, but normally sustainable businesses is what we do. Ready, Matt? Oh, yeah, sorry, I started when Sarah started speaking, so you're about to have already. Right, first, the race to zero keeps growing and the race to resilience as well. 
Um, it's likely that net zero targets from places like India will require more, but we're also, as we've said, moving from top level to delivery this decade. Um, we've had some big announcements on agriculture policy, coal policy and deforestation that are likely to affect businesses. On the nature side, 95 UK businesses have pledged to nature positivity this COP. Also, the big money does seem to be moving with the GFANS and other initiatives here. Um, as NGOs have said, wary of overarching claims, but that's something we've not seen at past COPs. Also, clean tech, the Glasgow breakthroughs from 40 nations and the mission innovation on clean tech were also notable and likely to affect businesses, areas like alternative fuels, hydrogen and so on. Um, Matt's waving his phone at me and distracting me, so I'll finish there. I mean, that was the time anyway, you, you hid it, so. Did you, had you written that one down, Sarah? I had written this one oh, down. Oh, you had yeah. written that one down. I was going to say, I mean, the last few you hadn't written down and you can't really tell any difference. But um, yeah, there we go. Laura Coonsberg, eat your heart out. Very good, uh, as ever there. Um, so that's our take on the Glasgow Climate Pact. Uh, I think it's probably about time that we hear now from some other people on this podcast because um, I kept myself very busy in the final 24 hours in Glasgow. I think I had my first interview around 8am and my last at around... 8:30 p.m. so you'll probably be able to hear me getting more and more knackered as these chats go on um but essentially for what was our last day my last day in, in glasgow i thought it would be good to focus on what happens next and what the actual legacy of, of cop 26 is and looks like for for different people right across the spectrum of the economy um and i started with the perspective of the younger generation uh, cop 26 has been a, a cop like no other in terms of youth engagement and activism from the outside of the talks at least um, and on that front I was rather lucky to be able to grab this first interview of the day because amidst all the action and the Sharma drama going on in the in the COP26 blue zone there was a young girl who was whizzing around with a, a load of camera and audio equi equipment um, much more sophisticated looking equipment Matt than uh, what me and you were running around with most days I must say um, and it turns out that she was here making a documentary about COP26 and the, and the climate action movement from the perspective of young people. Her name is Kasia Sokoya Slavna, uh, and the documentary she has just started making is called 1.5 Degrees of Peace. And this ended up being one of the most fascinating chats that I had over the whole two weeks, because I think Kasia really sums up what the COP26 legacy means for, for young people at the moment and, and why there's still so much frustration and anxiety among young people, almost regardless of what comes out of these talks. So I won't give any more of the game away. Let's now hear that chat I had with Kasia just before leaving COP for the last time. Here we are then for one last time uh, in the action zone in the heart of COP26. Um, there was just a, a small protest uh, here around us a few moments ago, which is quite fitting, I think, because uh, as we reflect on COP26 and what it actually means outside of these four walls, um, I'm delighted to be joined now by Kasia Sokoya Slavna, who is a multi-award winning Generation Z documentary filmmaker and peace and climate activist from Canada. Um, and Kasia's actually here at COP26. 26, making a documentary about this COP from the perspective of young people around the world, which I'm sure we'll discuss shortly. But Kasia, hello, thank you for joining us. So tell us a little bit about your story and, and how you've ended up coming here to this COP. Um, so I've been a documentary filmmaker for the past seven years since, I mean, it's going to sound ridiculous to say that I've been 
in the field since I was about 15 or 16, but this is my second feature documentary called 1.5 Degrees of Peace. I'm here to discover if conflict, militarization, and the climate crisis are being discussed as the intersectional um, intersecting issues that they are here at COP and looking for youth who are breaking down the silos between these two issues because we're not going to see the progressive climate action that we hope for unless we're bringing this topic into the conversation. And is this your kind of first COP experience? Yes, um, I have experience with UN conferences, but never anything of this scale before. Um, I usually attend the UN Commission on the Status of Women, which is quite a well-attended civil society uh, you know, event at the UN headquarters in New York. Um, but this has been, I think it's been quite an overwhelming uh, first COP experience. What's really kind of stood out for you then or what have you found particularly interesting because I suppose you've been kind of looking at this COP from a particular perspective in terms of that kind of vision and perspective of the young people anything that's kind of stood out to you surprised you stuck with you in this experience I'm feeling I think a lot of young people right now are feeling grief knowing that we're on track to meet 2.4 degrees of warming when our target is 1.5 that's where we should be to be in a safe range to experience a healthy and livable future. Um, and there is a, there's a large youth presence inside these doors. There's also a large youth presence that is missing from this space just because they couldn't get to COP. It's, it's a huge privilege to be here. And those who have the privilege, the young people who have the privilege of being here, um, a lot of us feel tokenized and, you know, just given a space to say a nice speech and then not actually being given power to just like help make decisions and so I have faith that there are folks trying to do the right thing but I do agree with the sentiment that more needs to be done and I've been inspired by the power of collective action that I've been seeing from young people inside COP and outside of COP. Yeah, it's kind of reminded me of a big piece of research that came out um, only a few days ago. I think it was a company called Futera who we were speaking with on a previous episode or I think on a video recently. Um, they did some research with Ipsos which revealed that 20% of young people now fear um, that it's too late to fix the climate. They have this kind of climate fatalism as they put it. So from your perspective, how can we kind of turn that anxiety about these existential threats into bold action? Great question. That's the mission of my work with, you know, documentary filmmaking is to highlight the struggles of activists who are confronting these existential threats, but also, you know, the creativity, the solutions, the friendships that they build along the way, the ways that they're trying to continually stand up and demand justice for everybody, whether it's climate justice, whether it's social justice. And I think that that can give us the courage that we need to sustain our movements because standing up, raising your voice and then feeling not heard or not listened to, it can take a lot out of you. And so building community with people who are in the struggle together is really important. Taking rest for yourself is really important to continue sustaining bold action and having hope for the future and the, a vision of a better world that we want to achieve is something to look forward to um, because I don't think that we can build a better future if we don't know what it looks like to us yeah so tell us a bit more about this documentary then this is my first production shoot for the film so this is the the way we're kicking off our our journey into making 1.5 degrees of pieces this 
is a historic event that's taking place right now and we're gonna either look back on it well or we're going to look back on it as a failure. So it is really important to be here and document what's come out of COPS so that we know where we have left to go. And we're obviously at the last day of COP, the kind of conclusions haven't happened, so this is kind of a difficult point to be discussing whether it's a success or failure, but having made that documentary and gone through this process and experience the last one or two weeks, what's your feeling personally? Do you personally feel that this is going to be a success, that the voices here are being heard and that the right actions are being taken? It depends on what your narrative of success is, because I think what has been successful is the way that people young people especially have come together, the way that we have been resilient in the face of adversity, and the way that we have built a platform to continue forward with action. Like I think that knowing that we're still on track to, to meet 2.4 degrees of warming, that's, that's a failure in terms of an objective. So it's double-sided. To me, I think the leaders have failed, and also I think that the young people have succeeded in our efforts in a way. And in terms of that kind of the the potential failure there. What is it specific? Is there anything in, in particular specifically that you would like to see coming out, if not at COP, um, from world leaders, business leaders in the coming weeks, months that would start to turn the dial on this? Any particular uh, areas uh, that you'd like to see change? Well, firstly, um, letting young people and observers in the rooms where negotiations are happening is a start. We weren't able to do that this time. And so conversation I heard earlier today was about intergenerational partnership and how the median age of world leaders here are approximately 60 and the young activists are in their teens and 20s. And so the leaders are not going to have to live through the effects of the climate crisis as soon as we will. We should be phasing out fossil fuels to begin with, but also personally, I would like to see the military being held to account as a polluter. Um, the militaries are exempt from reporting their emissions. The U.S. military alone has emitted 50, I believe it's 52 million tons, uh, metric tons of CO2 in 2020, and that is larger than some countries' emissions as a whole. And so looking for that piece of the puzzle in climate negotiations and conversations, it needs to be a part of how we move forward as a strategy for meeting our warming targets. And so for me, that's something that's very important. Okay, um, I'm just thinking about this episode being the kind of the final, I guess, legacy episode of, of COP26 covered. So for you, what, what do you feel like the legacy of, of COP26 will be for, for young people, if there is one? I think a lot of young people are feeling a bit, I think grief is the word, like the way that the media built up this COP as being the last and only hope. Well, now it's passed. So what do we do from here is the question for a lot of young people. And I think that we have the strength to build a movement that will hopefully see us meeting our targets and achieving climate justice. But it's definitely given us an outline for what we're going to do. Okay, well, uh, Kasia, uh, we could speak a lot longer about this documentary because I'm personally very interested in it and it looks fantastic in the trailer I saw. Um, I know that you've got another appointment to head off to now and that documentary to finish filming, so I'll let you get back to it. Um, thanks for joining us. And by the way, when is that documentary due to be coming out? Um, I'm not giving a final date now just because of the nature of documentary production. Um, I'm going to say 2023. 
well, I'm sure a lot will happen in the meantime as well in regards to this kind of climate debate. So it'll be interesting to see how that comes along. So um, thank you very much for your time and for being part of this legacy episode of COP26 Covered. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, thank you so much to Kasia for providing that <coughs> perspective. And um, I can't wait to see that documentary when it comes out. Um, wouldn't usually plug films or TV on a show like this, but I really do recommend you watch the trailer for that documentary because it feels like it could be really groundbreaking. So 1.5 degrees of peace, it's called. Um, now, after wiping my the tears from my eyes and, and waving goodbye to Ed Miliband one last time, um, I left the COP centre and ventured out across town for a much needed cup of tea and a chat with a man who I think really epitomises everything this summit has been about. Alan Hendry has been a, a long-time friend of Edie's and he's one of the directors of sustainability at Mott MacDonald, the big engineering company which is, as the name might suggest, headquartered in Scotland in Glasgow. Uh, and at the risk of this sounding like a, a segment from Partridge, Alan is a, a real-life Glaswegian, born and bred, who I went out and spoke to. Um, and out of everyone that I follow on, on Twitter and LinkedIn, I must say he's been one of the most active people in town these past two weeks, um, attending fringe events pretty much every day and night of COP. So I went to pay Alan Hendry a visit at the McDonald offices to talk a bit about what the COP26 climate legacy is for his city and then the people of Glasgow. And he gave us a fascinating insight. So I'm going to skip my intro on the recording and just get straight into the chat. Um, Matt, any guesses on what Alan's first words for me were? Um, wrap up warm. <laughs> wrap up warm, okay. It was three words. Um, let's see if you're right. Here's my chat with Alan Hendry, one of Mott McDonald's sustainability directors in full. Well, well firstly, welcome to Glasgow. <laughs> welcome to the, the whole ED team. Yeah, it's, it's, been, uh, it's been hectic. I've been trying to take in as many events as possible. Um, from a Mott's perspective, we've had a, a big team up and we've been active in the Blue Zone and the Resilience um, hub uh, where we've curated quite a lot of the, the talks but in terms of where I've been uh, gosh I've been all over the place I've been to the the DEFRA tech exhibition so that was uh, literally across the road from my house so it was interesting to go in there and see uh, some of the tech that's coming through some of the technical solutions and IT that will help us with uh, sustainability in net zero uh, I've also been to the connected places catapult uh, who had a, a big session in uh, the Glasgow City Chambers and uh, announcement of a, a commission looking at how best to fund uh, net zero in cities and that involves the, the London boroughs, the, the core cities and the, the catapult itself. So they brought out some papers, so some interesting stuff there. I've uh, been on stage and on a platform with the, the Colombian Minister for Energy talking about their energy transition journey and that was great because I was able to involve uh, one of my MOTS colleagues from our Bogota office so it was nice to do a bit of international nice. links. Uh, where else have I been? Uh, <laughs> where haven't you been? Yeah, um, <laughs> possibly one of the highlights I think of, of the, the, the two weeks so far was the, the jazz gig we, we hosted in our office for staff and, and uh, clients uh, which featured the wonderful uh, Lolita Jackson who I've known for many years. Uh, Lolita was formerly the um, the sustainability and climate change advisor to the mayor's office in New York, but now works for um, Sustainable Development Capital Limited, who who invest in uh, net zero 
um, sessions. And so it's been really nice to be kind of, I guess, back in the game of mm -hmm. so sure I've got a pocket full of business cards and I think my perspective is, is this is really just the start of many conversations we will have over the next weeks, months mm. and, and longer. Mm. And uh, yeah, it's wow. been great. It's been very, very, very local, but also very international as well. Yeah, it sounds like. And, uh, and you haven't been in the blue zone. I've not been in the blue zone. <laughs> For whatever reason, I, I didn't um, get tickets, but uh, there's been so much stuff on. I think you know, we've been reflecting. It's it's the it's the Glastonbury or the Edinburgh Festival of Sustainability. You just can't be on and be at every stage. No, it's fascinating. Um, I'm, I'm somewhat envious that you've been able to kind of have such a kind of a, a busy couple of weeks without having to go into the blue zone. It's, it just shows, as you say, how much side events there are going on. Um, so in terms of the obviously being here in Glasgow before when the preparations were happening and now being here during, what's the kind of feeling? been like how is how has the feeling of this city changed obviously you were here before mm. this kind of whole circus arrived I, I don't know that the city knew what to expect so that, that, that you know you never want to get between Glasgow and, uh, and a kind of a big an event so that they're mm. very good at things like you know the European um, city of culture the, the British city of culture or, or architecture um, we've hosted the Commonwealth Games we've done the, the Champions League final and I think people know what those things bring to a city. Um, some are over a year, some are very short period, whereas COP, I don't think people really knew what to expect. Um, clearly, it's caused quite a lot of disruption to a lot of people because of road closures. And I think particularly early in the summit when we had all the world leaders, uh, that we seemed to have invented a new form of tourism, which was looking at um, presidential cavalcades. So that the building we're in, uh, that the Biden Mm -hmm. The Biden cavalcade went by, all 26 cars. Uh, oh, wow. But uh, on the night where they all went for dinner, the, the, the streets were lined with people just going, oh, how many cars? Who's yeah. that? Um, so that that was interesting. But you had the the contrast of you know the 26 uh, cars for, for President Biden. And then you see other delegates on double-decker buses heading mm. down. So it's, it's been interesting. Mm. Um, I think in terms of the, the legacy, I think that's yet to be seen. I think... Um, I desperately hope that we really get a good agreement out of this and so the Glasgow Agreement is seen as something that's quite pivotal in, in addressing climate change but again hearing today about the kind of some of the stuff in the marine sector so there's a there's a Clyde Bank agreement being agreed for the marine sector mm -hmm. so you know as a, as a proud Glaswegian it's great to see your city the, the, the worlds of your the world the eyes of the world on your city mm -hmm. uh, is, is quite an exciting thing and uh, and you know, from what I'm hearing, people have really enjoyed the city. They found the the people very friendly, um, and you know, the, I think a lot of people will come back on the basis of what they've seen in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sat across the table from a Norwegian, so I'm bound to say this, but genuinely, it has <laughs> felt like that. I was quite sort of. Yeah, it sounds strange to say I was shocked by it, but just how friendly people have been all the way through the two weeks. It wasn't just a kind of putting on a show on the first day. It's kind of even today, like tonight when I was checking out, you know, they're still just saying, have a really good night and how how did it go today and asking questions and just everyone from the man on the bus to the woman that kind of checks you in when you come in in the morning. All those little things throughout the day, I think has helped people kind of get along. And yeah. Um, so yeah, anyway, they're kind of hidden heroes of the summit here on the ground. And I think also just the other thing is, you know, it's you, you can tell there's a lot of people in the city and it, they're obviously concentrated around the, the cops, IBC, other things and, you know, with the the march on well with the two marches with the young persons march on the friday and um, 
I don't think they were all young people to be honest but uh, it, was, it was it was great and uh, and then the big march on the Sunday and despite pretty horrendous weather conditions the numbers were, were pretty amazing and uh, it was just great to see and yeah it's you know some things like that are almost quite emotional to yeah. see that kind of outpouring of uh, care for mm. our climate and our globe yeah and bringing this back round to I'm um, just yeah, remembering where we are, we're in your your offices, uh, lovely offices, I must say. And um, from a built environment perspective, we're obviously we've just had uh, built environment day of COP twenty six, that kind of penultimate day. What's your take on it been? Are you sort of generally pleased with some of the announcements, commitments that have come out? Do you think this will help your sector in any way? Uh, uh, yeah, I, I think it definitely will. There's obviously um, a lot of investment being pledged, and I think there's also a real recognition of the need for partnership because um, we're not short of policies, we're not short of targets. Um, what we need now is, is, is a roadmap and we need to start implementing and, and, and doing things and doing things at scale. And we're actually we're working on a piece of work for ICE Scotland, which is about how do you accelerate the route to, to net zero and you know, sort of key themes that are coming of that are very relevant to the city, so it's about a much stronger place-based approach it's about using procurement in a in a more intelligent way uh, so i i think the the announcements on you know the, the urban environment will be good and i know the green building council also brought out um, something today so there, there's lots of kind of helpful guides there's also the, the finance but uh, i think that the challenge now is just getting on and delivering it mm. and just kind of, i guess last question was just around this podcast episode is all, been all about the COP26 legacy. What does the kind of COP26 legacy mean for you? Um, I th- well, I think yet to be seen, but if, if I look at it from a perspective of Glasgow, you know, see in the paper this morning that the city is seriously looking at pedestrianising the core part of the city centre. Uh, there's plans to um, basically cover over parts of the motorway and create a park on top of that. Uh, largely probably due to COVID, there's a, there's a substantial new set of um, cycle paths in the city. And then probably the major thing is, is the kind of the announcement on Wednesday there of the kind of Glasgow Green Deal, which is a, a nine year plan to look at um, climate change and resilience, um, sustainable jobs, sustainable places and, and tackling fuel poverty and uh, delivering the, the, the much talked of just transition. So uh, yeah, there's I think for the city, uh, there's been a real concentration, and if you're if you're hosting COP, you, you need to basically <laughs> you need to walk the talk and, and deliver, and uh, you know, moving forward, I think there will be a substantial improvements in the sustainability of, of, of Glasgow. Mm. Okay, well, um, Alan, the sun is well, the sun's well and truly set now. Yes. It's, I don't know what time it is in the evening. Um, thanks so much for, for inviting me into the, the offices here. And thanks to Glasgow for being such great hosts as well. So I'm going to hand back over to Uslot now, back at home. Yes, uh, here is Uslot back at home. Um, Sarah, Matt, having heard Alan there, quick word from each of you on your Glasgow experience. Sarah, anything really stick out with you from that week in our... Airbnb just down the road from COP or from Glasgow generally? Um, I feel like I'd definitely like to go back to Glasgow and see more of it. People have said, oh, it's a beautiful city. What are you going to see? And I said, well, blue carpets and uh, leek and potato soup and uh, just those two in repeat, um, really. But as you say, great, great atmosphere. I would love to see what it's like um, post-COP sort of day to day. 
Matt? And the train journeys up, up was lovely as well. We went through the Lake District um, and then got to see some of the the sea and some of the hills. And I feel like that really set set the scene mm. as as well. Um, I, yeah, I don't think I'd be able to really describe Glasgow to someone. I don't think I really got to see enough of it to the point where if someone rang me up and they're like, oh, I'm in Glasgow right now, um, <clears throat> do you know where like so-and-so is? My only point of reference would be the Blue Zone, which is essentially temporary, um, would be literally kind of the, the Hydro and the Armadillo would be the only real point I would be able to kind of say, yeah, this is this is what I know about Glasgow. Um, you know, from what the, the experience, though, the Glasgow experience felt like... Um, a little bit like kind of Disneyland, you know, a lot of the kind of architecture around there has that kind of that kind of uh, spire look to it, which you always see on the kind of Disney logo and whatnot. It's a very kind of pretty architecture around that. And it, it did feel like, um, you know, you queue up for two hours to go on a ride, but it's not a ride. It's reporting on a, it's reporting on negotiations for a whole day. It did have that kind of spectacle about it. But in terms of Glasgow, the city, um, I can't really comment on it. I imagine if I went back in the kind of next year, it'd be completely different. You know, you wouldn't have Darth Vader outside of a building kind of singing songs about the climate crisis. Maybe you would. Maybe that's a normal thing for him. I don't know. But uh, it was it was Glasgow, but kind of um, dressed up in all its kind of pageantry. Mm. Who is Mickey Mouse in that Disneyland analogy? It's got to be Sharma, hasn't it? Yeah. I'll be sure. I was, I was thinking that. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really gutted. I missed out on, on that tour of, of Glasgow's sustainability story, which was organised by WWF Scotland. I think I promised it on a segment, on an episode of the show. Um, but then our plans changed. My plans had to change for various reasons. Um, but yeah, I also feel I missed out on seeing a lot of aspects um, from what I did see around that area of Finiston, in where our Airbnb was, and then Glasgow Central Station, where my hotel was. I've only got nice things to say, I think, about the city and people and culture. But as you say, Matt, it was a yeah, it was probably two weeks like no other there in that city. Going to be quite a contrast as well, I should mention, to, to COP27, which is touted for Egypt. So, um, yeah, stay tuned for COP27 covered. We'll have to secure that space. Right, now let's move on to what was my final chat of the day. Apologies, it's a bit of a me episode. Um, while Matt and Sarah have been covering all of the... the coverage online for the past week um and indeed this is the final interview of cop 26 covered because at this point it was about 8 p.m in the evening i thought my job was done um but i was whatsapped with a, a last minute invite to a evening event which was being held back over near the cop summit within the climate action innovation zone um and yeah who am i to say no to some free drinks because this was a very glitzy drinks reception being put on by the department for international trade and the team at the Formula E Electric Motorsports Organisation. There was someone from government speaking, I think, which I missed. I did make it in time for the canapes and drinks, the most important part of the evening, though. Um, And I also made it in time to speak with Julia Palais, who is Formula E's Sustainability Director. And as many of you will have seen, Formula E and its off-road equivalent Extreme E have been all over this COP. They've had cars in all of the zones. We've had photos by all of them, spoken on various stages and been part of some big announcements in the EV space as this summit has gone on. So as a closing chat, I spoke with Julia about what all this involvement means for Formula E, but more importantly, what the true legacy of COP will be for transport and mobility here in the UK and globally. But before I hand over to Julia, I'll stress again, this was a recording during a really busy drinks reception, so please try not to be distracted by the 90s dance music blaring out in the background. Um, 
Maybe I'll turn this into a little side game. Sarah, any guesses on the background music that you can kind of hear playing behind me and Julia? You said 90s, so I'm going with Spice Girls of some description. Okay, um, right, let's see if you're right and if listeners can name that tune during my chat with Julia. Okay, yes, and here I am with Julia uh, at the event. So, um, Julia, explain to us, where are we and, and what's happened this evening? So we are actually in the Sustainable Innovation uh, Forum zone and tonight we're hosting a reception jointly with uh, DIT, Department of International Trade. Um, and this reception is kind of like being, uh, as I said, co-hosted with Formula E uh, to celebrate really uh, how a UK business is really trying to push UK excellence uh, overseas uh, by using the power of sports and electric cars uh, to really pass a message on not only climate change but also the fact that uh, there's lots of uh, technologies and innovation present here in um, in the UK. And in terms of that kind of role of sport and the prominence of electric vehicles and electric vehicle sport here at COP, it's, it has been quite prominent. There's been electric, I've been walking past electric cars almost every day coming into COP. So talk to us about this kind of past couple of weeks for Formula E. Has it kind of been generally successful in terms of what you came along trying to achieve uh, out of this? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, obviously, COP26 is this very important rendezvous for us. Uh, I mean, being a, a sport born with a purpose, uh, COP26 is, is the place to be. And also, this was a COP that was very much focused on action. And this is something that we've always really kind of like taken at at very kind of like at the very core of what we do we always deliver instead of kind of like uh, pledging and uh, being the first sport in the world achieving net zero certification since inception back in 2020 10 years before most of the kind of like uh, most of the government pledges the businesses pledges and so on we take really action um, and kind of like delivery uh, at the heart of what we do. So COP26 has been kind of like a fantastic platform to finally showcase that we need to act and not to talk anymore, walk the talk now. And Formula E as a sport has really gained momentum over the past few years, right? So perhaps talk to us a little bit about the role of this sport um, in driving up electric vehicle uptake generally we still know not enough consumers are potentially purchasing electric vehicles for various reasons so where do you come into that well i mean formerly was created to support the advancement of electrification on the streets and we have let's say different leverages to do it the first one is uh, the technological platform what happens in the garages is going to be transferred in the cars that you and i will be buying and driving tomorrow so this is really exciting in just four seasons we doubled the battery capacity for example so this is really significant then there's the perception so we use really the vehicle pun intended of the sport to um, i mean i mean change the perception of people on electric mobility but more generally on sustainable lifestyles because it's much more than kind of like the cars on track so we're trying to showcase a day in a sustainable future that is going to be the coolest thing really really amazing really exciting and the last thing is that we work with governments as we are testifying tonight um, to try and push and advance the implementation of the correct infrastructure so that the electric revolution can really be kind of like a successful and kind of like a beneficial to everyone everywhere in the world and we had the government here earlier at this event speaking um, what has been your view generally on on policy uh, announcements, decisions that have or have not been made here at COP so far in relation to electrification of vehicles and clean transport generally? Well, I'm, I'm really optimistic because kind of like, uh, before COP and, and 
and during COP, we've seen a lot of uh, government, uh, very strong commitments taken uh, by banning the sale of combustion engine cars by 2030, by 2035 uh, and so on, de depending where you are in the world. Uh, and this gives me lots of hopes uh, because, uh, I mean, this is very concrete and that shows that uh, the electric revolution is not going to And one of the way, this is the mainstream solution that we're all going to be adopting sooner rather than later. And we know obviously that, uh, I mean, this is a very concrete solution to uh, fight climate change. We know transport is responsible between over, uh, in between of a third and a fourth of uh, emissions globally. So that's absolutely substantial to switch all these uh, combustion engines to electric vehicles that have zero tailpipe and overall a, kind of like a carbon footprint reduced by 50% compared to uh, fossil fuel engines. And just finally then, we're here at the very tail end of COP. It's my last night uh, here, uh, last interview here, I think. Um, so talk to us about the legacy of, of COP26 for you. What does, when I say the legacy of COP26, what does that mean for you? Well, I think uh, COP26, uh, I mean, is, is really a turning point. Uh, I mean, it was due to be 10 years before 2030, it's nine because of COVID. But these nine years are really, uh, I mean, the small decade, you know, in a way where humanity needs to take action, be extremely innovative and ingenious uh, to really kind of like, uh, find all the technological solutions that we can in all the different sectors uh, to make life on Earth possible under 1.5 uh, degree in terms of global warming, but basically meaning that uh, we have a chance potentially to live a place that is safe, but also like equal for our children. So I think COP26, uh, I mean, is really this turning point moment where humanity is uh, suddenly realizing that uh, we are facing the most uh, pressing issue that we've, uh, we've ever had as humanity. Uh, well, Julia, thank you very much for your time. As I mentioned, this is definitely, I think, officially underlined my last interview for this COP26 covered podcast series. We better get back into the reception. I'm going to have a beer and I'll head back to the guys at home. Yes, thank you very much to Julian and to the Formula E team for inviting me along to that event, which was very well timed, I must say, as my work was officially done and I could actually enjoy a beer or, or three that night. Um, had to then catch a 7am train the next morning though, which wasn't fun. Anyway, on, for those sad listeners among you who actually listened out for that background tune, the song was Gonna Make You Sweat by CNC Factory. One of those songs that everybody's heard, but nobody knows who sung it. And on that very random note, uh, I can't quite believe we're saying this, but that's a wrap for this episode and indeed for the entire uh, series of COP26 covered. What a whirlwind two weeks this has been. 14 episodes brought to you over 14 days, so we've stayed true to our word. Matt, um, as we close out, any kind of last words from you to summarise this kind of two weeks experience and, and where we're going to go next? Um, I mean, I don't know where we're going next. That's that's you, isn't it? That's you, Panet. But, um, you know, the COP26 covered, it did, did it, you know, what it said in the tin, a bit like Ronsil, other brands are available, but um, it, it covered it. But COP26 doesn't really end when the, the gavel comes down. What it does is create this uh, new wave of momentum. It kind of, uh, and whether it's a good COP or bad COP, we're still waiting to be seen. If it's a good COP, it, it kind of sets a trajectory for, for businesses to really ramp up action. If it's a bad COP, it makes it even more important for businesses to be kind of vocal um, with what they want from a sustainable future. So our work, post-COP is to galvanise that collective business voice um, to really drive change. I feel like Matt's really stolen the words here. It is, it is just the fact that 
ultimately it's been badged in the media as sort of this is our last best chance and once the gavel comes down that's it um and wouldn't it be nice to just have all the easy wins and never have to have a cop again but that's ultimately not how it works um and there's been so much work going into this in the build-up and there will be the same amount of work i i suppose afterwards once everyone has had some sleep and and some coffee yeah indeed sleep um probably before coffee for me um yeah, and I, I suppose I should take this opportunity to say a couple of huge thank yous. Firstly, to all of the guests and interviewees we've had on this podcast. Um, at last count, both, I think there were about 40 in total. So great work. Um, and yeah, we really appreciated everyone's time contributing to these discussions. Thanks also to the uh, team at ED's COP26 headline partner, O2, who have contributed a, a great deal to all of our COP coverage these past few weeks and months and probably goes back a, a year now. So thanks to them. And finally, thanks to you guys, Matt, Sarah. Um, I would have got you a little goodbye for now present, but as you say, we didn't really go anywhere in Glasgow, so all I could have got you was sort of Iron Brew. Um, Iron Brew was just everywhere. Um, so I'm sure you've had enough of that. Anyway, it's been great fun, I must say, and hopefully that's come across in these episodes. And usually at this point, I'd be shamelessly plugging this podcast and telling you all to subscribe, but instead what I'm going to do is ask you all to migrate with us because if you've made it this far and listened all the way through these episodes then chances are you'll be interested in ED's long-running podcast show Sustainable Business Covered which will be returning once again in a couple of weeks time. Sustainable Business Covered is essentially the show which brings ED to life. Matt, Sarah and I, I'm going to be back on it, um, bring you bi-weekly episodes, soon to become weekly as well, this is probably news to Matt and Sarah, which will deliver you exclusive interviews, special roundups and the occasional listener quiz as well. So come on over, join us there to keep the conversation going. Just search for Sustainable Business Covered wherever you get your podcasts and for links, just visit ed.net forward slash podcasts. Right, do also stay tuned to the main ED website for all of our coverage of this final 24 hours of, of the COP26 Glasgow uh, agreement coming into place and sign up to our newsletters if you haven't already for daily news, interviews, blogs from across the spectrum of green business. But for now, here on COP26 Covered, it's a final goodbye from Matt. So long, farewell. Goodbye from Sarah. Goodbye. And goodbye from me, goodbye. Goodbye.